Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com.au slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com.au slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com.au. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com.au. In this episode, we spoke with Tom Williams. Tom is Go Market's head of trading, and he started out as a dealer and broker in the excitement-driven city of London across equities, fixed income, and foreign exchange. Learning the technical aspects of what is now very much a software-driven business has allowed Tom to lead all trading operations at Go Markets, keeping the show literally on the road. Old Scouse loves a laugh and a pint, always affable enough to show you the bright side of life, as Monty Python would say. This is a fascinating episode where we cover what brought him here to Australia and what he misses about the UK, his role as head of trading at Go Markets, particular examples or crises like the Swiss National Bank crisis, the GFC, and Brexit, as well as what sitcom best portrays the Go Markets office. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe on your podcast app and share with one of your friends, particularly those who want to get an understanding of the more technical aspects when it comes to trading and what goes on behind the scenes. But with that being said, let's get into the episode with Tom Williams. Tom, thanks for joining me on this, what's turned into a rather miserable Friday afternoon in the Go Markets office. First question for you, how was the wedding? Wedding was <laughs> stressful. Um, 
it was great fun. We went up to Queensland and got the families from New Zealand, from Queensland, from England, all over, and a lot of them met for the first time, so it was great, but stressful just being centre of attention and having to entertain that many people for, for a few days. How long have you guys been planning this wedding? Like how, how, much, how much time do you spend typically on a wedding planning it? Uh, for me, a lot less than my wife. <laughs> um, for me, it was, uh, I'd say I, was, I played a, a passive involvement in the organization of the wedding. I like that. Um, I like that you're aware of that too. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> my wife's a florist, as you know. So, yeah. I, I mean, from the events side of it, she's got way more experience than I have. And um, I would have just messed the whole thing up if I had anything <laughs> to do with it. So Now, I, I want to get into how... I guess a liver pudlian made his way here in Australia, but I'll give people a little bit, little bit of a background. So obviously born and bred in Liverpool, uh, from looking at your past history, you spent, I don't know, maybe five years in the business in the city of London before you made your way out here. That's right. Um, obviously working in many different roles, but primarily as a dealer, um, it seems in the city of London, equities, fixed income, eventually CFDs as well, which is what Go Markets focuses on now. Um, what was the catalyst that drew you out to Australia? The catalyst to go to Australia was um, events happened in 2012 where um, the company I was working for at the time, they went into administration and there was, oh. a, there was a moment where I could either continue the daily grind in London or, or take some time out and... and go and see the world a bit, which is what I did. I uh, took a, nearly a year off, ended up in South America, um, which is where I met my now wife in Peru. <laughs> um, she was from Australia and I had to come over here to, um, to you know, seal the deal. <laughs> so really it was like love that, uh, that drew you out here. You could say, well, I had no intention of moving away from the UK because I, I, you know, never considered what it'd be like not working in the UK and um, I guess the opportunity was there and it seemed like the right thing to do and it's worked out pretty well. Yeah I I would definitely say that and it's so fascinating I I just look at it from your position I think I don't think you would have ever expected to be in this situation five six years ago. Absolutely not no no couldn't have even imagined it to be honest. But also it's interesting because of just where the UK is at and what Australia offers like I was the other day I was looking at like immigration numbers and it's still the UK is like our biggest um, in terms of uh, growth through immigration I'm pretty sure next to China I think so but it's still the biggest because a a lot of millennials like yourself come out here and there's just so much opportunity you can speak the language you get sun (laughs) yeah I mean the UK is a great place to live but we just we don't have the weather um I'm not saying that I'm much of a beach goer but you know we we just don't have the 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 sort of lifestyle that good consistent good weather brings you know we have we have long winters and um miserable rainy days and even you know Melbourne winter is considered a bad winter in Australia but you still get lovely sunny days and um it's just it's just a, a more positive place to be the you know people are more positive as a result of the the, the lifestyle um, that Australia offers. Mm. And apart from your family, what do you miss the most about home? <laughs> this is um, this is a question I get asked 
quite frequently and it's a, I struggle to answer it because there's not a lot that I do miss from the UK really? except family and friends to be honest not even football the football side of it you just learn to live with it and um, you know thanks to Optus you can catch up on the <laughs> um, you can catch up on demand pretty easily so um, to be honest I don't have I don't miss a lot um, in terms of like lifestyle or anything like that yeah well, it's good to hear. It's good to hear. And eventually uh, citizenship for yourself, like uh, one of the other POMs that we have in the office here, would be good to good to see. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about your family in particular, and I'm curious, as I like to lo- know from a lot of guests, is if you can think back to your own childhood and you got either your parents, is there a particular lesson or principle that you maybe hold with you today that you saw directly or indirectly from them and you're sort of starting to realise you it's really like a core tenant of your personality? Um, I suppose hard work um, and, and discipline as well. I mean, growing up in a city like Liverpool, you could be led astray by a number of different, um, in, in a number of different directions. And mm. um, my father's a policeman, so he was always very strict and perhaps saw me going in the wrong direction when I was, when I was younger. Um, and just in, you know, nothing, 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 cra- crazy. nothing crazy, but I'm talking just, you know, normal teenage stuff that you kind of get yourself involved in and, you know, but obviously he didn't turn a blind eye to that. He uh, put me on the right tracks and, um, so yeah, discipline, uh, hard work, you know, um, it, my father retired as a superintendent in the police, which is a pretty senior role to get to. Wow. Um, and he worked very hard for it. So I, I guess uh, I guess that's uh, always resonated with me. Yeah. Now thinking about work, um, your role here is head of trading, which is a thing that people see a lot on different roles for people in different CFD, FX, equity organizations, but they don't really know what it is. So I, th- I thought maybe we'll just get into the nuts and bolts of that. What does that look like? Like, and I'm thinking, I'm pro- trying to give people the context of 2003 to five. You would have still been on the phones a lot, taking orders. Now most systems are quite automated um, and electronic. So, what is your role of head and trading involve? So we try and focus on the the overall client's experience of the trading platform. Okay. Whether that be from a, a cost perspective in terms of uh, the spreads that they're paying, um, the commissions that they're paying, the overnight financing, all the way through to the quality of execution. So uh, how quickly are these clients able to execute? Are they able to execute during fast markets? Are they a- able to execute around news? Um, and we try to control the the overall cost of trading to make the whole whole experience better for yeah. the clients. So basically you make sure the shit doesn't hit the fan in Pre- a way. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, that's one element of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, on, a, on a day-to-day like operational sort of. Look, a, a lot of, as you said, uh, as you touched on before, a lot of it is automated. Um, all of our hedging algorithms and everything, everything is automated. It very much becomes autopilot to make sure that nothing goes wrong. And when stuff does go wrong, the most important thing that our team can do is is make sure it's put right uh, as quickly as possible. Are there any particular crazy stories that come to mind? I know that in my time here, we had some pretty stunning events where um, the markets were more than wild. 
I know in our last interview with um with Chris, he spoke spoke about uh, dealing with the the Swiss bank taking away that peg from the euro. I think I'm just curious as to are there any crazy stories that you have in memory of the market just going absolutely nuts? There's definitely a few. There were a couple after the SMB, uh, the Swiss National Bank um, crisis. We've had since then. We've had a UK referendum. We've had the election of Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. Um, we've had, um, you know, th- there's been a number of associated I- issues with with like a sterling fra- flash crash, which just came out of absolutely nowhere. When was when was that? Um, that was soon after the um, referendum. Markets, the Brexit. Yeah, yeah. St- markets started to settle down, and then out of nowhere, there was just like a huge liquidity drain. Where I mean, markets these days are so dictated by algorithms and high frequency trade uh, trading systems that. If there's a yeah. liquidity drain, it happens immediately. It's not something that happens over time. Yeah. So yeah, we um, we've we have witnessed a few um, a few occasions like that, but most notable is definitely SMB um, when um, when the Swiss National Bank just leading up to the events decided that they were going to tell the market that they were going to maintain this peg of 120 against the euro, and you know we're committed to doing this. And Thomas Jordan, the chairman of the SMB at the time came out and only a week prior just said, yeah, we're committed to holding this peg. And then all of a sudden shocked the market and said that this is not something that we can feasibly do. Really? So, um, yeah, I think it was like the 15th of Jan, 2015. So it was soon after like the Christmas break, everybody was just kind of getting back into the swing of things. And all of a sudden phone call at, you know, 10 PM at night, I think it was, uh, Australia time. You, you had one. Yeah, get into the office, shit's hit the fan. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, so there were a number of us in the office at the time and we had to, um, yeah, we, it was all hands on deck. Nobody really knew what was going on. Uh, we knew the, we knew that the, the news was out, we knew what had happened, but we didn't know how markets were going to react and um, nobody could really, uh, like banks in particular, couldn't really price where they thought the Swiss franc was. Right. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of, uncertainty around where things actually traded yeah, uh, where the market is where it should be exactly uh, and this went on for a week after the events which markets have never seen before um a week yeah it was it was it was a week it was a crazy time i'm gonna have to link this for the audience because that to me when chris raised it was um was very interesting you know i mean i read about it but i just didn't ex- you know we don't see the behind the scenes you know yeah, that, exactly. that you guys see. Um, if you were to think of like the most crucial aspect of your role, you spoke before about execution, liquidity, um, supervising, all that sort of stuff. What do you think is the most important, the number one, I guess, aspect of someone who is head of trading? I think without a doubt, it's going to be attention to detail and be, being observant and not missing things. Right. But at the same time, it's important to to remember what everybody's working towards and what the end goal is, which is is essentially for a, a you know an online FX broker is to have a product which is which is efficient for the clients. I mean, the competition amongst FX brokers these days is it's so. Th- I mean, there's, yeah. there's there's so many brokers out there. Everybody's on these kind of everybody's trying to compete on cost and. You know these discount pricing models. So if you fall behind the wolf pack, you, you're going to struggle to get in front of them again. So it's it's very important for us to just remember the end goal of what we're trying to achieve, which is to create this 
um, superior platform to our competitors. Yeah. And I think Gory spoke about that last week that because it's so competitive now, the main advantage you have is just being trusted and people know that a company like GoMarkets that's been around for a while can be trusted to maintain certain best practices or expectations through the market prices or the spreads that people get, as an example. Um, I find it interesting that you said the the most crucial component is attention to detail because if you think about the principles that you took away from your dad, it's hard working and discipline. And that is like the perfect thing for attention to detail. I find that very funny. Um, we were chatting before about what do we want to talk about in this session and you spoke before about Brexit, but um, I feel like you would have had a bit of experience uh, just from memory, we had a chat years ago about this. Um, but we were talking about the Lehman Brothers collapse and sort of the 10-year anniversary of the GFC. Um, the effect on the UK was pretty similar, although a bit different. So the government seemed to offer this money to these banks, but they wanted shares in return. And I'm pretty sure the government did pretty well over buying like a large portion of Lloyd's. I'm just curious, you sort of got into the industry around 2009, what memory do you have of, of that period? I was in the industry prior to 2009. Oh, I was really? in the industry from 2007. Um, so I was, wow. I was around when, when, when all this happened. And, but I was, very, I was young and I, you know, I wasn't in a responsible position. Um, but I just remember sheer um, fear and panic. And you know, um, in the UK, there were, there were there were customers queuing up at banks trying to withdraw all their cash, um, which obviously just doesn't work because banks don't hold yeah. that amount of cash. Um, there were banks going into administration. There was footage all over the TVs of you know people packing boxes up and like Lehman Brothers, for example, um, was a huge, huge tower in Canary Wharf. Really? Um, like it had its own tower? Yeah, which was just down the road from where I was working at the time. And it was just like Armageddon. You know, people didn't really know what was going to go on after that. Wow. But it turns out that things worked out okay. But, it, you know, who paid for who paid for that whole crisis in the end was probably the people. not the banks. It was probably the people. Yeah, that, I mean, going back to that point I made about the banks basically having shares purchased by the government it is it was the taxpayers money but you know it went back to the government and then the UK went through a massive austerity process because it was part of the EU that's what you got to do exactly um, huge welfare cuts and and i reckon that is actually why we've seen so many poms immigrate out here simply because the opportunity is dried up it's easier to come to australia um, as an englishman and uh, the opportunities are pretty great. You know, there's a lot of there is a lot of family connections for a lot of people as well. There isn't. It, it's also a, a case of you know quality of living. If you're a a, a plumber, a carpenter, an electrician, a, a welder in the UK, your quality of life is dictated by the amount that you you're going to be able to earn in those roles in the UK. Whereas yeah. you come to Australia and everybody has a good quality of life. There's a good sort of minimum. Um, minimum earning for any role and it turns out that the tradies in Australia probably do better than anyone <laughs> yeah, else better than us yeah so I mean uh, I've always loved that about Australia um, the fact that you know there is equal opportunities no matter what sort of road you you, you choose to go down yeah I, I definitely agree with that and that's um, why 
probably Brexit came along, which I want to chat about, um, is because, you know, you have all this immigration austerity processes in the UK, combine that all together, and you got yourself the perfect storm for what happened with Brexit. Because, you know, if you're a plumber living in the Midlands and you're getting paid F all an hour because um, some guy from Eastern Europe has immigrated over and he's happy to work for 10, 15 bucks an hour, then life's going to be pretty average, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, Brexit highlights some fundamental problems with the Eurozone, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. the Eurozone has, has always been criticised for, for being this huge block of very different economies, which are all governed by, you know, a single interest rate. And it's just, it's always been a, a complex, um, it's always been a complex system from from day one. But the the funny thing about Brexit was, you know, the, the, the lefties got behind um, Europe and they wanted, you know, solidarity with Europe. The city of London, which is a huge part of mm. the UK's GDP, obviously got behind Brexit because these this this lack of uh, the, the lack of borders in in financial markets is very very important. But then it was the it was the exact sort of um, demographic that you've that you've just highlighted, which was the you know the guys who aren't don't fit into those two baskets that I've just spoke about that are, are like. Well, you know, what's in this for me? Um, a lot yeah. of it was, I suppose, as with any of these decisions, it depends on what newspaper you read. Um, if, you, if you're buying a tabloid, you know, for, for a pound with a page three girl, and you, you're basing your um, you're basing your political votes on on a tabloid, then that might be what happens. But yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. I mean, my my view on it initially was, okay, this isn't a great thing. They've gone, they're going backwards here. But then I've had the time to sort of process it. And, um, you know, I like Nigel Farage as a speaker. But when you actually watch him in interviews, he goes a lot deeper into some of the reasons why. And having been involved in a sort of similar industry as Forex in cryptocurrencies, we've now seen the City of London actually come out here. My own view is that the UK seems to be pivoting itself towards Asia. And so, like, we've got this fintech bridge, which is sort of like a a compliance bridge through Australia. There's the free trade agreement, which they're gunning on. Um, my own view is that actually it's probably going to turn out better for them simply because they can use Asia, as a st- uh, Australia as a stepping stone to the biggest market in the world, which is I think Asia now without the Indian subcontinent or maybe was with, I just can't remember, is about 46% of world GDP. So it's the biggest market in the world. It's bigger than North America. Um, I don't know. How do you view it now in hindsight? I think day to day, it's purely the uncertainty surrounding how this how, how this Brexit is yeah. actually going to happen. I think um, long term, it will it will work itself out as all these things always do. Um, you know, we it, it's not a case of the UK leave the eurozone and all of a sudden nobody wants to trade with the UK. I mean, that's just that's just ridiculous to think that and. I suppose it depends on the negotiating powers of the UK government, whoever's there at the time, to, mm. to be able to go and strike these agreements with Asia, as you've just suggested. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because uh, they're not getting very far at the moment. I think it's March or something that it, it finishes up. Um, going back to just the industry now and then, um, last week we spoke about trends. So obviously cryptocurrencies has been a big thing, I guess, for the business here. Um, there's also the fact that like I was saying before, the role that you would have as head of trading being on a phone versus it more around automation now. 
Um, I was chatting to Kim before, Kim, who's one of the directors here in charge of the Asia business. And we're speaking about the institutional side of things and APIs. I'm curious as to what you guys have done around that, because he was telling me that you led something in that area in particular. Yeah, so we, um, we as you know, we're, we, we've got a lot of we've got a, a lot of clients, retail clients in Australia and overseas, and we've managed to, over the years, generate great relationships with the wholesale market uh, in terms of liquidity providers, um, prime brokers, prime okay. of primes, and. We also have, uh, you know, a, a very healthy balance sheet, which enables us to, to to go and strike good liquidity terms with with these counterparts. So our business has changed somewhat in that it's not completely retail led. Um, we are approached by a lot of wholesale type clients these days, including funds, other brokers who are maybe smaller than us who don't carry the same sort of balance sheet, who want to be able to get access to very tight pricing, very um, commercial terms that they might not be able to achieve elsewhere. So we've transitioned from this, you know, purely retail driven model to now being able to compete as a liquidity provider ourselves. Wow. I didn't know that. So now if you were to break down the percentage of the client or let's say the the amount of sales and, and, and volume of transactions between wholesale and retail, what do you reckon the percentage is? I'd say in terms of um, monthly turnover, I'd say it's around 66% retail, 33% wholesale. Wow. That's a decent chunk. Um, I mean, the sheer volume that a wholesale client can do is obviously the reason behind that. They can they, they can, they can have good months, they can have terrible months, um, but retail is still the majority of our business and that's where we try to differentiate ourselves away from competitors because it's you know, ties in with the whole online marketing and... Yeah, well, it's just interesting to hear how the trading desk is um, changing in that regard because it's one of those things you got to keep growing somehow. you got to keep doing new things, so... Diversification of flows becoming very important for us as well because retail tends to go completely one way. Um, the whole retail market will read the same news, so everybody kind of trades in a similar fashion. And for us to be able to reduce costs by internalize, internalization. I mean, we need to be able to see different types of flow from different demographics. Yeah, and put it put the, the opposing way out, essentially. Exactly. Interesting. Huh. Now, what I'd like to ask each guest is um, giving the audience an idea of what the, the, the office here is like. I think, what, like I was saying to Chris last week, I mean, since I was here, it's a pretty impressive company. There's a lot of staff. I think there's like 40 or so staff now. Big office, nice offices. I just want to give people an idea of of what the team is like and how, you know, because we're so removed from seeing the people behind the business, what are they actually like? And so I'm curious if you were to choose one sitcom that represents the Go Market office, do you have one in mind or what would it be? Do I, uh, should I ask what Chris's answer to this was or? Um, you don't want to know. Okay. Well, my answer would definitely be the UK version of The Office. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've, um, I think we've definitely got a David Brent character. Yes. Um, and that would be Chris who claimed that last week. Did he claim it? <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, I must, I must have drilled it into him. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. But no, the office, it's a great environment. There's, it's a fairly, um, a fairly young demographic, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not a load of old boys sat there. It's, it's, yeah. you know, new, uh, 
educated um, and you know friendly people to work with. So yeah, it's uh, no, it's a good place to be. Well, look, um, we're running out of time, so I want to switch to some short, uh, fast questions for you. Um, what does your morning routine look like? My morning routine <laughs> is very straightforward. I um, I've just moved house, so my okay. my my tram route to work has tra- changed slightly. But um, yeah, I get into the office uh, around seven a.m. and um, get in touch with what's gone on overnight. I mean, seven a.m. is New York close, so there's not really a lot going on after that. So markets have settled down. Um, just time, wait for nine a.m. Time to read some news. Uh, ASX has still got a couple of hours to open. Um, so, I mean, get to work, have some breakfast and, uh, get ready <laughs> get for the day. And evening, how do you sort of decompress at night? What's your go-to for relaxing? Uh, go to the gym, um, go boxing, kickboxing, okay. um, do that th- three or four times a week, probably three times within the week, uh, head home, dinner will be on the table. No, I wish. <laughs> You know my wife. (laughs) No way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, she's good. She is good. Um, But yeah, and then just kick back. Most of the time, most of the time during the week, it's an early night. Um, I like that. Good. Nice and relaxing. Yep. Um, Most influential book on your life. Let's say if you had to gift it to someone at Chris Kringle this year at Go Markets, what would you gift? God, this could be controversial, couldn't it? (laughs) Um... (laughs) No book is ever controversial. One that's always struck a chord with me is The God Delusion. Okay. Where It's a good book. Yeah. Have you read it? Um, I just bought it. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. I, um, I go through this heavy process of uh, building a list of books every year and then I buy like them all at once after I cull that list and um, I just got that one. Well, brought up in a you know predominantly Irish Catholic background in Liverpool, it's... Uh, yeah, my my mum's got a similar sort of background. Yeah, it's um, you know, if you if you were seen walking around the streets with the God delusion in your hands in Liverpool, you'd definitely get a, f- a few funny looks. But cosmopolitan Melbourne, you can get away with it. Yeah, can you just give a, a quick little explainer for the audience as to like what the not it's about? Oh, I mean, it's it's generally about you know the scientific approach to life rather than the religious approach, mm. um, and it's you know a completely different. Uh, they they say never talk about. Pol- politics religion so <laughs> just stick away from it let's not go into it yeah look it's a good book uh, i bought that with um the selfish gene by richard dawkins is pretty good um yeah they're good reads i reckon um another one for you any favorite um docos or movies if you had to list like your top top three or five oh, i go through phases with documentaries in particular where i just stop binge watching something about a random topic. Are you a Netflix guy? Netflix, but I find, you know, I find sometimes Netflix can just get sour and yeah. um, there's not a lot going on. But, you know, I, I, I move in trends from watching documentaries about guerrilla warfare in the Democratic <laughs> Republic of Congo to watching, to becoming completely fascinated with World War Two and, you know, Auschwitz and all the all things that. associated with it. So... Auschwitz is one of my most recent ones, which is a fairly morbid topic. But yeah. um, have you been been there at all? I've not been, but I'd like to go. Yeah, it's um, I'm I'm actually in that stage again right now. I mean, I've had it for like over the years many times, but um, you find a few good movies there, like um, that really sort of 
shows the the individual what it was like. Like um, Schindler's List. Um, there was one called one, the Wansey Conference um, with a uh, brilliant English actor. Colin Firth was actually in it as well. Um, just little films like that that are underrated, I think. I think Schindler's List is a pretty well-known film, but... Um, yeah, it just really gives you that perspective. Completely eye-opening and, you know, um, you, you just cannot fathom yeah. what went on. So, um, yeah, so in, to answer your question, a, a diverse range of, yeah. of documentaries. Um, last question for you. Uh, what has been the best purchase for you under 200 bucks? I... Okay, well, let's not talk about a purchase that I've made. What about a purchase that I'm going to make, which yeah, yeah. I'm on the verge of making? But so it, it could also be a purchase like that is an experience. It doesn't have to be a specific oh, okay. thing. Well, the other day, we've, we're organizing, Farron and I have started to organize a couple of um, life-size impressions of ours to send over to the UK for <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> So we can sit them, we can sit ourselves down at the Christmas dinner table and enjoy a bit of um, overcooked turkey with the family. Wow, that's good. I really like that. Um, so yeah, under a couple of hundred bucks, I, I think that will probably be the purchase of the year. You should start a little business like that for other expats. Just be like, hey, I don't could, have to go home. I could be the go-to guy for uh, life-size models. <laughs> uh, well, look, Tom, it's been a pleasure. We've already hit 30 minutes. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S. Until next time, thanks for listening.